All right, well, good to see you tonight. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 26? Genesis 26, verse 1. There was a famine in the land, beside the first famine that was in, was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, in Gerar. Uh, just for your information, Abimelech is not a, a proper name. Many think it's a, a dynastic name, like Herod. There were many Herods in the Herodian dynasty, all right? So they think Abimelech uh, is a, a dynastic name. Uh, this is not the same Abimelech that Abraham dealt with many years earlier. Now, Gerar is located, on the, located in Canaan on the border of Egypt. And, you know, Isaac, uh, I don't know if he was kind of backslidden or what, but he, his famine hits and he's moving towards Egypt. Gets down to the very border, hasn't crossed over yet, and God tells him, don't go any farther, stay here. He does obey, but there are a lot of Christians who really haven't gone back to the world, which is what Egypt represents, but are kind of content to live on the border. Ever know anybody like that? Their attitude seems to be, how carnal can I be and still get to heaven? You know, how close to the world can I live and still have God bless me? That's always a sad place to be in because your goal should be not to see how close you can get to the world before, I don't know, falling back into it, but it should be how close you can get to Jesus. But verse 2, Then the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land which I shall tell you. Dwell in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For you and your descendants I will give, for to you and your descendants I will give all these lands, and I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham your father. And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my law. Now, uh, my laws, God said. Now, Canaan, of course, also known as the promised land, was God's perfect will for his people. Whenever they were in the land, that's when his promises would be fulfilled and his blessings would flow. If they left the land or if he removed them in judgment, they were cut off from the flow of God's blessings and his promises. You know, in a spiritual sense, Canaan represents in our lives, the promised land represents in our lives the life of the Spirit. What is that? Well, it's God's center or perfect will for our lives. Uh, it speaks of being in fellowship with Him, uh, living in obedience, walking uh, in faith. This is God's will for every child of God, that we be in the Spirit, walking in the Spirit. Because when we're in the Spirit, that's in living in obedience and walking by faith. That's when His blessings can flow uh, his power can be manifested. That's when he can really work in and through us the way he wants to. Now, let me just say this. You know, I know that God wanted Isaac to stay in the land. Isaac is a type of Christ, and of course, Jesus never left the promised land. He stayed within it. But uh, again, when we talk about believers in our spiritual promised land, that's where God wants us. That's where the blessings flow. And whenever we step out of God's perfect will, get back into the world, that's when the blessings are kind of cut off. Uh, God's promises to us are kind of put on hold. I'm not talking about positional promises. We're still saved, positionally. But practically, everything God wants to do, 
uh, for us, it's conditioned upon us being in a place where he can bless us. That's what Jude meant when he said, keep yourself in the love of God. Well, what does that mean? Keep myself so sweet and, you know, cuddly that God can't help but love me and bless me? Uh, think again, okay? Uh, no, uh, when, when Jude says, keep yourself in the love of God, God's love is unconditional. Uh, he, he's always going to love us as his kids, regardless of what we do. But he can't always bless us, even though we're his kids the way he wants to. We're not really in a place where we are honoring him and being obedient. When my kids were little, they disobeyed. I mean, I didn't throw them out of the family, but I wouldn't take them for ice cream either. I mean, if, if they were living in rebellion or doing things that were contrary to the family rules, if they didn't knock it off and get right with us, uh, their mom and I wouldn't be able to bless them the way we want to bless them. So that's just something to think about. God's the same way. He wants to really bless his kids, but he, need, he needs us to be walking in obedience and so on. Now, verse 7, and the men of the place asked about his wife, and he said, she is my sister. For he was afraid to say she is my wife, because he thought, lest the men of the place kill me for Rebekah, because she is beautiful to behold. Uh, as the old saying goes, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Or, like father, like son. Uh, this was the same thing Abraham had done a hundred years earlier when there was a famine in the land, and he went down to Egypt. And there he lied. He told Pharaoh that Sarah was his sister, not his wife, because he was afraid. Because Sarah was so beautiful that, that Pharaoh or somebody would kill Abraham to get to, to Sarah. All right? And um, now Isaac does the same thing. In fact, also, uh, Gerar was the place where years earlier Abraham went and lied to another Abimelech, king of the Philistines telling him that Sarah was his sister, in chapter 20, verses 1 to 8, or 18. So Isaac hasn't really learned from his father's mistakes. He's kind of walking in some of them himself. The sins of the fathers are passed down to the sons in many respects, and that's just because kids learn from their fathers and moms many things that are caught, not necessarily taught. In other words, they learn a lot from our lives just by studying us. And seeing how we do things. Well, verse 8. Now it came to pass when he had been there a long time that Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, looked through a window and saw, and there was Isaac showing endearment uh, to Rebekah, his wife. Then Abimelech said to Isaac, called Isaac and said, quite obviously, she is your wife. So how could you say she is my sister? And Isaac said to him, "Because I said it because lest I should die on her account. And Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might, might soon have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt on us. So Abimelech charged all his people, saying, He who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. One author said, and I quote, We must understand that we are being watched. When you sin you may be sure that a non-believer is watching through some window, end quote. Look, twice Abraham was rebuked by an unbelieving king. Again, Pharaoh in chapter 12 and Abimelech in Genesis 20 for saying Sarah was his sister uh, and not his wife. Of course, that was a half lie. Sarah was his half-sister. Of course, we know a you know, half-truth is just a total lie. But uh, here Isaac says the same thing. And this was a total lie because Rebecca was not his sister at all, half-sister, whatever, okay? She was not his sister at all, and um, 
this pagan king has to rebuke him now. You know, the thing that really troubles me, makes me uncomfortable about this story, is that this pagan king seems to have more morals and a greater fear of God than do many of our own leaders in this country. He was afraid to take another man's wife lest he bring God's judgment upon himself and the nation. I mean, we don't even worry about adultery anymore in this country, all right? I mean, it's been so legitimized in, in, in many ways, right? If you're unhappy, just find somebody else and whatever. Have your little fling, whatever. You just got to make sure you're happy. Today, of course, we're dealing with things like, you know, um, gay marriage and other things that our leaders are pushing for that there's no fear of God in their hearts. They may give God lip service and, you know, uh, say that they believe in God, but honestly, the way our leaders are acting and the laws they're pushing, there is no fear of God. Jefferson said, you know, one of my great fears is that people don't really understand how righteous and holy God is and that his judgment can come upon us at any time if we don't honor and obey what he has said. Well, verse 12, then Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. God showed Isaac that even though there was a famine in the land of Canaan, if he obeyed God, in other words, stay, in, other words stayed in the land and just trusted God to provide, God would provide all that he and his family and servants and livestock needed. In fact, God went on to prove that by giving him a hundredfold harvest. A hundredfold harvest. Guys, look, I'm convinced that many of these trials that we go through or you know, are times of testing. That God is just wanting to see if we are going to hang in there and be faithful or if we're going to take things into our own hands and run and get back into the world, whatever we need to do to fix this. Are we going to honor God and obey Him and stay put? And let... The problem with so many Christians is they never give God an opportunity to really show them that He is able to take care of them and provide. The credit card comes out right away and they, they gather a, a massive amount of credit card debt. Then they ask God to pay the credit card bill. I don't really think God works that way. I think he says, look, either you're going to take care of this with your credit card, or you're going to trust me to take care of it. It's a test, right? And a lot of times we just don't stay put and say, well, God, here's the deal, but I'm going to trust you, Lord. And, you know, you promise to take care of us. We just ask you to provide these needs. Well, verse 13, the man began to prosper, Isaac, and continue prospering until he became very prosperous, for he had possessions of flocks and possessions of herds and a great number of servants. So the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped up all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham, his father, and they filled them with earth. Now, as you can well imagine, wells were difficult and expensive to dig back then, all right? Therefore, why in a desert land that desperately needs water, why would the Philistines want to fill up these wells that were dug by Abraham? I mean, these were wells that provided water for life. I mean, they were life-giving. A well in a desert? Are you kidding me? Why in the world would they want to fill these up with dirt? Well, there's two reasons I can think of, one practical, one spiritual. First of all, I think they wanted to do this to erase the memory of Abraham from the land. But it's primarily Abraham's God. We see the same thing going on today around the world with ISIS. 
When they conquer an area, maybe you've seen in the news, the first thing they do is they go into the, into the museums and all, and they, they rip everything down, destroy everything, they, the statues, and everything, anything that, that, dealt with or, that dealt with that culture's um, historical background, they want to wipe off the face of the earth. Why? Because they want to remove all memory of their cultural heritage because they only want them to be loyal to the new ideology rooted in Islam. And so that's, this is the, the, something that, you know, pagans have done for many, many centuries. That's the practical thing. Just get rid of Abraham's name, you know? Abraham's God. But secondly, from a spiritual perspective, the world, which the Philistines represent, look, the world always wants to fill up. In other words, get rid of the wells of living water Christians have dug in any area, whether you talk about churches or ministries or businesses, etc., anywhere the gospel Anywhere God's truth, God's truth is made available to the people of this world. These are wells that the world wants to get rid of so as to erase the influence of God's the influence that God's people have in this world. They want to remove God from society. There are there are many people who are actively working to make us a totally secular nation. And they want to get rid of God everywhere and they don't want God discussed in public discourse. They want to relegate God to your own private home. But that you, that's where you need to keep your faith. And uh, they're trying very hard to erase our heritage, our Christian heritage, uh, trying to say we have always been a secular nation. Our founding fathers didn't want us to be a Christian nation. That's absolutely untrue. And they're trying to just remove God from every area of our life. We see it in the way Christian businesses are being attacked and shut down for not servicing gay weddings. And soon, how Christian churches are going to be attacked in an attempt to shut them up or even shut them down by the government for not performing gay weddings, for preaching against homosexuality from the pulpit, which they've already deemed and passed laws is hate speech, and they're on the books, and eventually they're going to start being enforced. So, you know, we're living in a time when Christianity now is becoming more of a liability than it is a blessing. For this country. Verse 16, And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. Then Isaac departed from there and pitched his tent in the valley of Gerar and dwelt there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water which he had dug in the days of Abraham his father, for the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham. He called them by the names which his father had called them. So Isaac goes back now to the same resources, to the same sources of life, which, again, these wells were sources of life, uh, that had sustained his father for so many years, he goes back and he begins to reopen these wells, calling them by the same names his father Abraham had called them. There's a great lesson here, I think, for all of God's people. When the world is really attacking God's truth, we need to return to the truth, or, in other words, the spiritual wells, that um, sustained previous generations of Christians. Look, we are living at a time when um, there are many churches and there are many people teaching and preaching on radio and television. So people would hear me say this and go, well, what are you talking about? You know, we, we have God's word being taught all over the place. Well, that's true. However, if you really see or look at what is being taught, it really isn't uh, lining up much of it with what God has said in his word. We're in the last days. 
And as Paul said, he warned us in the last days, people would have itching ears and they would gather to themselves teachers who would basically tell them what they want to hear and not what God's word says they must hear. So we have a lot of people preaching and teaching in Christ's name, but a lot of it I don't think is really cross-centered. It's more man-centered. And here's the thing. Our nation is suffering because of it. When the church is on fire and when pulpits are preaching God's truth without, you know, watering it down, that's when the conscience of a nation is pricked by the Holy Spirit with conviction against sin. If the church becomes man-centered, as it has become, and we see more and more teaching just towards felt needs and not towards or against sin, well, the nation begins to slide more and more away from God, and the church is actually uh, lending itself to the devil, who wants people to drift farther and farther away from God, because as the nation drifts farther away from God, it becomes more and more ripe for judgment. What we need to do is we need to open up the wells that our forefathers dug. I'm thinking about, we need to go back to the preaching uh, of the period in this nation's history during the Great Awakenings. Preachings of Jonathan Edwards and Wesley and Whitfield, okay? That kind of preaching was what God used to bring great conviction, to bring uh, his power to this country, which, which manifested itself in repentance and great revival and so on. You read some of the accounts of the Great Awakenings of the 17th, 1700s and so on, and even into the early 1800s. It's absolutely amazing what God did. And it was attributed to the fact that there were many preachers who were preaching faithfully God's word, preaching against sin, and were not watering down the truth of God. And people responded. Uh, the Holy Spirit, no doubt, was behind it all, but um, it, it does start with faithful Men and women of God preaching and teaching God's truth without being watered down in any way. But anyways, verse 19. Also Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found a well of running water there. But the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of that well Essek, which means contention, because they quarreled with him. Verse 21. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that one also. So he, Isaac, called its name Sitna, which means opposition. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rahabath, which means enlargement or roominess, because he said, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. You know, Isaac seems to have been a man of peace. Uh, he wanted to get along, and that's not a bad thing. I'm not, saying, I'm not saying he was a compromiser. I'm just saying that he was a man of peace. He wanted to try to get along with people. And, you know, uh, as Christians, we are commanded in Romans 12, uh, Paul says, if it's possible, and as much as depends on you, let's live peaceably with all men. And that's what God wants us all to do. He doesn't want us to be brawlers or fighters or contentious, okay? He wants us to try to get along with people, and if we can... Be flexible and do something where we can get away from the contention and, you know, be a peacemaker. That's what he wants for our lives. However, I realize that's not always possible. It's not always possible. You do your best to be at peace with all people. That's why Paul said, if it's possible, as much as depends on you, uh, live peaceably with all people. Sometimes it's not possible. Um, and so then, like Abraham, when Lot was taken hostage, we need to fight. We need to fight. 
I just read how uh, last day or two how Franklin Graham, Billy's son, is admonishing Christians to fight against those companies that are promoting and supporting the gay agenda by not doing business with them. Now, I think that that's a legitimate way to fight against those who want to silence us. Look, Isaac just wanted to have room in the land, didn't he? He didn't want to kill the Philistines. He didn't want to drive them out of the area. He just wanted to live in peace, to coexist, okay? He just wanted room to live his life. And that's really all I want as an American. I'm not suggesting that we hurt gays or uh, even drive gays out of the country. God's going to deal with that whole issue. I want to see gays saved, okay? I just want to live in, in peace, you know? I want there to be room for my Christian faith without me being called a homophobe. When, when a Christian bakery says, I, I, you know, I really can't bake a wedding cake for a gay couple. But there are bakeries in the area, and I'll give you their names because they're more than willing to do that. But my Christian belief you know, just won't let me do that, okay? Um, our, our faith should be respected. We shouldn't be called names. We shouldn't be fined uh, or later on even imprisoned. I mean, all we want is to have room to live our lives and to worship our God and so on. Look, I tolerate homosexuals. I really do. I tolerate homosexuals. But they don't tolerate anyone that disagrees with them. And so we are forced to stand up and fight. Not literally, but to fight through the means that Franklin Graham is recommending. Uh, I think that these businesses need to understand that, look, uh, you know, the gay population, uh, they try to say they're 10%. Many studies have shown they're between 1% maybe 2%. Those who profess to be Christians, I'm not saying they all are, but are in our country is like 90%, okay? You're going to alienate the 90% for the 2%? That doesn't make sense to me. I mean, look, you want to be, me to be tolerant of them, I am. Uh, they need to be tolerant of us and to stop trying to target Christian businesses because they want to close them down because they disagree with Christians and their stance on homosexuality. Well, anyways, verse 23. Then he went up from there to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father, Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord, and he pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. Guys, I see four things here that are necessary for any pilgrim of christ all right just simple things i just see in this passage first of all make sure that you are in god's will that you're in a place where he can bless you notice how god said i'm with you and i'm going to bless you isaac was where god wanted him to be therefore god could bless him the way god wanted to bless him so you know what is a pilgrim as a follower of christ make sure that wherever you are in your life you're in a place that god wants you to be you're not living in sin or compromise a place where God can bless you, as we said earlier. Number two, build an altar. Make it a place of worship. You know, the only thing that really separates the church, because we're an organism. In some ways, we're like an organization because we have to have our 501c3s and we have to, you know, have our uh, file with the, with the government and so on and all of that. We are a corporation in many respects, but here's the deal. There are many corporations, okay, and they all exist for certain principles or reasons that they have that they've come together 
What separates the church from every other organization is that we are a worshiping entity. We are those who worship God. Let's not forget that. Somewhere along the line, the church has begun to think of itself, itself as a corporation instead of as a, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Anyways, like a living entity. We're not a dead organization. We're a living organism. And uh, when the church presents itself or thinks of itself as basically just another organization and then begins to apply business techniques to build and run the church, uh, we lose that. So, you know, whether you're talking about a church or your own personal life, make sure that worship is the number one priority. That's why God has created us, by the way. Number three, you got to pitch your tent. Pitch your tent. What does that mean? Well, you got to abide, okay? Abide. If you are, are where God wants you to be, then don't leave that place. Pitch your tent. Abide there. It speaks of fellowship with God, of course, as well. And number four, dig a well. What does that mean? Well, drink daily from God's Word, which is living water. You know, that's how you stay in fellowship with Jesus and remain strong. So just four simple things. Make sure you're in God's will, build an altar, pitch your tent, and then dig a well. Those are all things that we as God's pilgrims need to do uh, daily. Now, notice what happened when, I, when Isaac did this. Verse 26, Then Abimelech came to him from Gerar with Ahuzoth, one of his friends, and Phicol, the commander of his army. And Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, since you hate me and have sent me away from you? But they said, We have certainly seen that the Lord is with you. So we said, Let there now be an oath between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm since we have not touched you and since we have done nothing to you but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed uh, of the Lord. It's interesting. I think one author nailed it when he said, and I quote, it is when Isaac definitely separates himself from the men of Gerar that they come to him seeking blessing from God. He said the Christian best helps the world when living in separation from it, end quote. Yeah, it's a good point. Well, verse 30. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. Then they arose early in the morning and swore an oath with one another. And Isaac sent them away, and they departed from him in peace. And it came to pass the same day that Isaac's servants came and told him about the well which they had dug. And they said to him, uh, to him We have found water. So he called it Sheba, which means oath, or could mean seven. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba, which means well of the oath, or well of the seven, to this day. When Esau was 40 years old, he took his wives, Judith, the daughter of, daughter of Beri, the Hittite, and Basimeth, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they were a grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah. There is nothing that will give Christian parents grief of mind and heartache more than to have one of their children marry an unbeliever. As we're going to find out, though, uh, Esau himself was an unbeliever, all right? And that must have been a double heartache, to have a son who was an unbeliever and who married an unbelieving woman. Well, chapter 27. Now, 37 years passes. It's interesting how the scriptures just pass over large amounts of time. 37 years passes from the end of chapter 26 to the beginning of chapter 27. And guys, if there was ever a chapter in the Bible that painted God's people warts and all, it would be this chapter, okay? We get a clear look at how dysfunctional Isaac's family was 
And yet, they were still all believers, uh, saved by grace, all except for Esau, as we just said, um, just like many Christian families. You know, so many Christian families are very dysfunctional. I'm not saying they don't love the Lord, and I'm not saying they're not saved. They're just not really walking in the Spirit, all right? Yet God still loves them, and God still tries to bless them in any way He can. God will bless us as much as we let Him. We talked about earlier from Jude, right? Keep yourself in the love of God. Well, that's the idea. God will bless our lives as much as we allow Him to. And He wants to bless us quite a bit. So anyways, verse 1, Now it came to pass when Isaac was old, and his eyes were so dim he couldn't see, that he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered him, saying, Here I am. Then he said, Behold now, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now therefore, please take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me. Okay, want some of that game. And make me savory food such as I love. Isaac was all about the, the game, all right? All about the killing stuff and bringing her home having barbecue, okay? Verse 4, make me savory food such as I love, and bring it to me that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now, why Isaac thought he was on the verge of death, we're not sure. Uh, at this point, he's 137 years old. His brother Ishmael died at 137, so maybe in his mind somewhere he's thinking, well, maybe that's the year I'm going to die. Uh, maybe this is it for me. Maybe he just, that's what he was thinking. Or he might have been a hypochondriac. We don't know. I mean, you ever had a parent or a grandparent or aunt, uncle, or somebody, some family member? Every time you saw them, they're always talking about, oh, I don't have much time left. Probably going to be my last Christmas, you know. And this went on year after year after year. Isaac's 137 years old here. You know when he died? Dead at 180, 43 years later. It's quite a span of time from this chapter here. Now, at this time, Esau and Jacob are 77 years old, just so you get uh, that in your mind. Of course, it kind of torpedoes the beautiful scene we're going to see with Jacob and Rachel uh, next time, you know, because we're thinking that Jacob was a young guy. But, you know, he lived to be, I don't know, 147 or something like that. So he was midlife, so 35 maybe to us, right? So he was pretty young still by that standard. But verse 5, now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to Esau, Esau, his son. And Esau went to the field to hunt game and to bring it. So Rebekah spoke to Jacob, her son, saying, Indeed, I heard your father speak to Esau, your brother, saying, Bring me game and make savory food for me that I may eat it and bless you in the presence of the Lord before my death. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice according to what I command you. Now, go to the flock and bring me from there two choice kids of, of the goats, and I will make savory food from them for your father, such as he loves. Then you shall take it to your father that he may eat it and that he may bless you before his death. They're going to concoct this little scheme now where Jacob is going to uh, clothe himself and all and, and, and try to present himself like he's Esau. Okay. Um, now look, no doubt Isaac knows that Rebekah told him 77 years earlier that God had spoken to her and told her at that time that the younger would be blessed over the older, and that the older son, Esau, would serve the younger son, Jacob. They were twins, but Esau 
was born first. And Jacob, of course, came out holding onto his heel. That's why they named him Jacob, which means heel catcher. And he went on to be quite a heel catcher, tripping people up to get ahead of them, a con man, a schemer, a conniver. That was Jacob. However, it seems, even though Isaac no doubt knew that, what God had said, either he didn't care what God wanted, or maybe he didn't believe that Rebekah really heard from the Lord in this thing. All he knew was that Esau was the oldest. Esau was his favorite son. And therefore, he was going to bless Esau regardless. Now, Rebekah, she did believe what God had told her. That Jacob, which was her favorite son. See the dysfunction here? Got parents who favor one kid over the other. Um, kid. 77-year-old kids, okay? There's a 77-year-old man. Now, son, do what I tell you. You know, okay, mama. You know, I, give me a break. 77, grow up, man. It's time to cut the cord, all right? Rebecca, though, she did believe what God had told her, that Jacob, who was, again, her favorite, was going to be blessed over Esau. The problem with Rebecca was, apparently she didn't believe God could do it unless she deceived her husband. But that was okay, I'm sure she thought, because I'm only doing what God wants. God, this is what God promised. I'm only trying to fulfill God's promise. Guys, her motive, was, her motive was right to see God's will done. But her method was wrong, using deception to accomplish it. Okay. Well, verse 11, And Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Look, Esau, my brother, is a hairy man. That's what Esau means, hairy. Okay? And I am a smooth-skinned man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be a deceiver to him, and I shall bring a curse on myself and not a blessing. Now, guys, Jacob didn't really mind being a deceiver. He just didn't want his father to think of him as a deceiver. You know, there's a lot of people like this. It's not that they, really mind, they don't really mind being untruthful. They just don't want people to think they're liars. But God sees everything. And God knows all, all right? Also, Jacob was the kind of a man that, as we're going to see more clearly as we study his life more, he was the kind of man that didn't mind scheming and conniving if it would benefit him in some way. But here he's worried that his scheming might backfire and bring a curse upon himself. I mean... Forget the fact that he's, you know, he'd be deceiving his father and defrauding his brother. The only thing he's worried about was how it was going to affect him, see? And that's kind of the way Jacob lived his life, you know? It wasn't that he was really such a moral man, so worried about doing what was right. He was only worried about doing what was right by him, as we're going to see. Now, verse 13. But his mother said to him, let your curse be on me, my son. Because you worry, well, what if dad finds out it's me and he curses me? So Rebecca says, let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go get them for me. Get the kids of goats and bring them to me so we can get this deception, this plot going, okay? Um, I got to say this is sad to me. It's sad to me. Rebecca has not aged well spiritually or morally. She hasn't aged well spiritually or morally. When we first saw Rebecca, she was a teenager living in Haran way back in Genesis chapter 24, a hundred years earlier. At that time, Abraham had sent Eliezer, his eldest servant, to Haran, to Mesopotamia. That's where he was from originally. He didn't want Isaac taking a wife from the Canaanites. You know, he didn't want her, him marrying an unbeliever. So Abraham sends 
his oldest and most trusted servant, Eliezer, all the way to Mesopotamia to get a wife for Isaac from among his brethren. When he gets to the town of Haran, that was uh, the name of Abraham's brother, you remember the story from chapter 24, how that he prays, gets there around evening time, sits down by a well, and he prays, God, if you're in this now, Lord, prosper my journey, and um, you know, let a pretty young gal come out to water, because this was the time of the day when the, the young women came to get water for the home and to water the animals. It was cooler. You don't want to come uh, when it was the heat of the day. So they would, early morning or later in the evening, uh, they would get water from these wells. And Eliezer said, Lord, if you've prospered my journey, let a pretty gal come out, and if I ask her for a drink of water, uh, have her say to me, yes, drink all you want, and let me also water your camels, which is what happened. As we said, camels, ten camels, they drink a lot of water. For this young gal to offer of her own free will to water this stranger's camels indicated she was a woman of great virtue, an unselfish gal, a kind-hearted, a very gracious young woman. As we see Rebecca in those days, I mean, she was the picture of all these things, of sweetness and kindness and grace and so on. And now she seems to have aged into a scheming, conniving, controlling person. I like to say this was unique to Rebecca. I have seen this uh, in my years of ministry where many Christians have not aged well. You see them when they're young in the Lord, they're so full of love and excitement and just the Holy Spirit, they can't do enough for people. They're serving people, they're loving on people, they're gracious, they're kind. And something happens over the years. I don't know what it is with some people, but they slowly become sour and bitter, angry, you know, they're conniving, they're trying to get even with people. You look at their lives, instead of them becoming more like Jesus as time goes on, which is the goal, they're becoming less and less like Jesus. It's sad to see it. Now, this is just a little snapshot of Rebecca's life at this moment. It could be that this she's having a bad day. It could be that the situation has gotten the best of her, and even though she is a sweet gal still and a woman of faith, she backslides here. We, that could be. We can't really paint her whole life at this point uh, with this one little snapshot of what's going on. And I hope that was the case, that this was not, uh, didn't characterize the woman she had become, but I see it with many others that it does. Well, verse 14, and he went and got them, got these two young goats, brought them to his mother, and his mother made savory food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the choice clothes of her elder son Esau, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And she put the skins of the kids of the goats on his hands and the smooth part of his neck. I mean, you have to, you have to imagine, what kind of a guy was Esau? <laughs> he, he smelled like a bear, looked like Wolfman. I mean, the guy's a hairy ape, you know. Jeez, um, I mean, how did they pull this deal off, right? So she you know, puts this smelly... Esau's smelly clothes on Jacob, you know, somehow paste this goat's hair on, and the Hebrew is all the way up to his elbow, okay? So they, she pastes this thing all on his back of his neck. It's an elaborate ruse, okay, to deceive, Esau, uh, to deceive Isaac. And um, uh, verse 18, so he went to his father and said, my father. And he said, here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I'm Esau, your firstborn. 
I have done just as you told me. Please arise, sit and eat of my game, which that your soul may bless me. You can count the lies there. I think there's four of them, okay, in one sentence. But Isaac said to his son, how is it that you have, fo- you have found it so quickly, my son? Listen to this. He said, because the Lord your God brought it to me. This is nauseating. It's disgusting, okay? Not only is Jacob lying through his teeth to his father, at one point he brings God into the whole lie, claiming that God actually blessed him, all right, by bringing him the animal so quickly. Again, you know, I've known people over the years that use deception. Christians now, who call themselves Christians, I don't know their hearts, who use deception to get what they want and then claim because the outcome was good for them, that God had blessed them. And I'm like, how deceived are you? The worst deception, guys, is self-deception. It's amazing how deceived we can become when we are not really walking in the Spirit and we're using deception, manipulation, everything else to get our way. And when we take advantage of people through manipulation and so on, and we gain something for ourselves to actually think that God is blessing us. How tragic is that? But that's where... Jacob was coming from. However, Isaac was suspicious. Okay, verse 21. Then Isaac said to Jacob, "Uh, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, whether you are really my son Esau or not. Of course, Isaac can't see. He's probably legally blind at this point. Everything very blurry. All right. So he has to depend on his senses of smell and touch. Okay. So he says, come near, you know, let me just touch you. Just make sure you're really Esau, because nobody feels like Esau. So verse 22, so Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, and he felt him and said, oh, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. Now look, Isaac, wake up, man. I mean, it's like, give me a break. You think you'd stop and say, yeah, maybe I ought to pray about Rebecca, get in here. Who is this kid? Or call one of the servants over. I mean, to, to go along with this ruse, he's obviously suspicious, right? He says, gee, I don't know the voices, Jacob's, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not, I think he's wanting that barbecue too bad, is what it is. That's what I think, okay? Uh, the King James says venison. I don't know if it was actually deer meat, but he, he was wanting this, this barbecue that his son was famous for. Uh, he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. Then he said, are you really my son Esau? And Jacob just flat out, bold-faced lie, I am. He said, bring it near to me, and I will eat of my son's game, so that my soul may bless you. So he brought it near to him, and he ate, and he brought him wine, and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, come near now, and kiss me, my son. He's still checking this kid out, all right? And he came near and kissed him, and he smelled the smell of his clothing. And blessed him and said, surely the smell of my son is like the smell of a field. Yeah, what is that like? Which the Lord had blessed. Therefore may God, now he's going to bless Jacob, who he thinks is Esau. Therefore may God give you of the dew of heaven, of the fatness of the earth, and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you, and nations bow down to you. Be master over your brethren, and let your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be those who bless you. Now, 
Once again, guys, this is basically a reaffirmation of the promise that God gave to Abraham in chapter 12, which was then passed down to Isaac and now is being given to Jacob by the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. See, that phrase, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we hear over and over again as God's way of reminding them of the covenant that he made with them through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of course, and then through uh, the uh, patriarchs, but in in particular, I'm thinking of Judah, okay, one of Jacob's sons. Now, verse 30, now it happened as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob that Jacob had scarcely gone out. Wow, that was a close one. Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, that Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also had made savory food and brought it to his father and said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that your soul may bless me. And his father Isaac said to him, Who are you? So he said, I'm your son, your firstborn Esau. Listen to this. Then Isaac trembled exceedingly, exceedingly, and said, Who? Where is the one who hunted game and brought it to me? I ate all of it before you came, and I have blessed him. Listen, and indeed he shall be blessed. Interesting. Did Isaac at this point just remember what Rebekah had told him so many years earlier? That God had said the younger would rule over the older? Is he just remembering it now? Sometimes, you know, the guy's 137 years old. I mean, I'm 59. I can't hardly remember anything. All right? At 137, maybe he just forgot. We don't know. Or, and this is the one I really lean towards, is he realizing at this moment that regardless of what he wanted, God's will was going to be done. And I'll tell you what, we can scheme and connive. God's will is going to be done. Oh, he lets us use our free will, but he knows what we're going to do. And so he already incorporates it into his ultimate plan. And uh, God's will is going to be done. You know, somebody trying to understand how we can have free will and yet God his plans are going to always come to pass. I'm talking about his ultimate plan now of, of Jesus returning and establishing his kingdom. You know, the ultimate things the Bible talks about. And they say, well, it's kind of like if you were boarding a luxury liner a ship from England to New York. On board that ship, as it's cruising towards New York on its course, on the destination that it was intended to, to get to, on that ship, people are doing all kinds of things. They're eating, they're relaxing, they're socializing, playing shuffleboard, whatever they're doing there. They're all doing whatever they want to do. But that ship is still moving in a definite direction and will get to the place it was intended to go. And that's kind of how God's will is. It's a kind of a crude illustration. I just know that, as we have said before, God's, we have a free will. But God is never subject to or limited by our free will. God will let us choose, make our choice. Judas, nobody told Judas what to do. God didn't force Judas to betray Christ. And yet God knew it would happen. God let Judas exercise his free will, but incorporated it into his plan because Jesus Christ had to be betrayed and crucified for our sins. So, you know, I don't worry about, you know, some people get all worried and they're saying, oh, what's going to happen now, you know, and... God's will, oh, the plans of God are going to be thwarted because this happened or that happened. Don't you think of that for a second. God's in control. He's sovereign. I believe that. 
Yet he never violates our free will. I believe that too. So, you know, anyways, I believe that at this point, Isaac is just realizing, and he's trembling, because here he was going to bless Esau. Hey, that's my favorite son. He's the oldest. The blessing belongs to him, because the oldest got the blessing. Um, I'm going to do what I want to do. And God says, oh, really? And Isaac finds out, no, God, his will will be done. Verse 34, when Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, me also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came with deceit and has taken away your blessing. And Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright, and now look, he has taken away my blessing. Well, that's not completely true. Esau, or excuse me, Jacob did not remove or take away or cheat Esau out of his birthright. Remember that Esau sold that to Jacob for a bowl of beans, basically. That's how much the birthright was worth to Esau. Lentil stew, right? A bowl of beans. Uh, Esau, of his own free will, sold his birthright because you know what? The birthright wasn't important to him. The birthright essentially said that when the father died, the eldest son would become the uh, high priest of the family. He would become the spiritual leader. Esau was a man of the world. He didn't care about spiritual things. The birthright was the last thing he cared about. And besides, if I'm dead, what good is it be anyways? He said, I'll sell it to you. Here, take it. Okay? And so he ate and got up and left and didn't think have a second thought about it. He was not a spiritual man. Now, look. This has always troubled me. Maybe it's troubled you. Many read this and they say, well, look, what's the big deal? Okay, why didn't Isaac just take the blessing back from Jacob and give it to Esau? It was because, listen, the blessing was permanent and irreversible, which is why, which is why Rebekah and Jacob went through this elaborate scheme. See, they knew that once the blessing was given, it could not be revoked. There is a great doctrinal lesson here, guys, in the fact that God says the younger uh, will rule over the older and how that once the blessing was given, it couldn't be revoked. There's a doctrinal lesson here being taught that you need to understand. And that is that the older, and of course, spiritually speaking, we're thinking of the old nature, which we inherited from Adam, will serve the younger. Our new nature, which we receive from the Holy Spirit, as we put our faith in Christ, and we are now children of God. God is saying to us, look, when you got saved, you received a new nature. The old nature we inherited from Adam. The new nature we received from the Holy Spirit when we put our faith in Christ. Okay, And God says, look, the older nature is going to have to submit to the new nature. That's God's will for our lives. Not that we walk in the old nature anymore, or the flesh, but that we are now governed by the Spirit, right? But here's something else. Once God has pronounced the person blessed in Christ, that blessing, and I'm thinking of salvation, eternal life, can never be revoked. Read Romans 11, verse 29. The gifts and the calling of God is what? Irrevocable. Once you are saved, once God has called you and saved you and pronounced a blessing upon you in Christ, because we're all blessed in Christ, that blessing is irrevocable. You'll never come into condemnation. You'll never be judged with the wicked. You will always be a child of God. That, 
well, yeah, but Lord, I don't always live like a Christian. I, a lot of times I'm deceitful. I'm not upright. Once the blessing is given, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit, and that gift, that eternal life, that blessing will never, can never be revoked. I'm not, I'm not advocating we live carnal lives like Jacob, who was a believer, by the way. It's just that we are saved by grace. We are saved by grace. So Esau's beside himself. Again, verse 36, he said, you know, this guy took away my birthright. Now look, he has taken away my blessing. And he said to, you know, Esau said to Isaac, have you not reserved a blessing for me? Then Isaac answered and said to Esau, indeed, I have made him your master. And all his brethren, which would mean Esau, I have given to him as servants with grain and wine. I have sustained him. What shall I now do for you, my son? And Esau said to his father, Have you only one blessing, my father? Bless me, me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Now at this point, we need to look at what the writer to the Hebrews says about this scene. Turn to Hebrews 12. Because the writer to the Hebrews, who I believe was Paul, actually talks about this incident here. He says in verse 14 of chapter 12, he said, Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord, looking carefully, lest any fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright, for you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. You know, John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, was initially very troubled and even stumbled uh, by this idea that Esau wanted to repent. He wanted to repent so badly that he sought it diligently with tears, and yet God refused his repentance. And Bunyan had a real problem with that. He wrestled with that for a long time. He couldn't figure that out. Lord, the guy's weeping. He's crying. He wants to repent, but you're not letting him. You don't accept it. Why is that? Until so one day, as he was meditating on this, the Holy Spirit spoke to him and showed him it wasn't repentance that he saw diligently sought with tears. It was the blessing. Listen, the blessing that only accompanied being a part of the covenant people of God. But you see, Esau didn't care about being a part of the covenant people of God. He didn't care about his birthright, which spiritually speaking means a spiritual person born into the family of God by faith. He was not a, a man of faith. He was a man of the world. All he cared about was living for his flesh. But listen, listen to this. But he still wanted the blessings of God upon his life and his eternity. Look, at, on the day of judgment, all unbelievers like Esau are going to weep and wail. Not because they didn't live for God on the earth, but because they will not get the blessings of heaven for eternity. Look, at unbelievers don't want to live for God in this life, that's true. But they still want the blessings of God, the blessings of going to heaven. They still want that. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people who do believe in God. They do believe in heaven. They don't want to live for God, but they certainly don't want to go to hell. Okay? And Esau discovered, and so will they one day, that you can't have it both ways. You can't live for the flesh and still be blessed with eternal life. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it to you. This is what Paul absolutely said in Galatians chapter 6, 
verses 7 and 8, he said, don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, nature, from that nature will reap destruction or hell. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, will reap eternal life. And I wonder if Paul had Esau in mind when he wrote those words. Well, verse 39. Then Isaac said to his father, excuse me, then Isaac his father answered and said to him, Behold, your dwelling shall be of the fatness of the earth. Now he's he's going to try to bless Esau. Okay. Uh, it's kind of an anti-blessing in a way. Uh, Behold, your dwelling shall be of the fatness of the earth, and of the dew of heaven from above. But your sword, by your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. It shall come to and it shall come to pass when you become restless that you shall break his yoke from your neck. Well, not much of a blessing, okay? But listen, guys, Esau here represents an unbeliever, which he was. God can't bless unbelievers too much. He blesses them in some ways. It's what the theologians call common grace. Uh, yes, God makes his sunlight shine in the fields of the just and the unjust, causes his rain to fall on the fields of you know, the unbeliever and the believer. There's common grace. Uh, even unbelievers can partake in some ways of God's character. They can know happiness. They can know joy. They can know love. These are all attributes of God that come from his nature. Paul said, in him we live and move and have our being. All of us. Now there is coming a time when unbelievers will be judged and completely separated from God. They won't, you know, in him live and move and have their being. They'll be completely separated from him and cast into hell. And that will be a place of eternal torment, wailing, weeping, and gnashing of teeth forever. But the idea here is that is Isaac tries to pronounce a blessing on Esau. He can't really say too much because Esau represents unbelievers and God can't bless unbelievers too much who determine that they want to live in their flesh instead of walking in the Spirit, being saved. Now, this blessing that um, Isaac gives um, that Esau's descendants, who were, became the Edomites, uh, suggests they would live in desert places, would be warriors, would be subject to the Israelites, but would one day rebel against their rule. In fact, the latter prophecy was fulfilled in the reign of, the reign of Joram, king of Judah, in 2 Kings 8, verses 20 to 22. Uh, but uh, overall, uh, this is God's plan for his covenant people. Uh, Jacob was now the one who would uh, take that forward. He was going to be the father of the 12 patriarchs and so on, the covenant people of God, the Jewish people. And um, the Edomites, uh, I believe now today, the ancestors of the Edomites are the Jordanians who live in that part of the world. But verse 41, as we bring this so close, So Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing which his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, the days, are, the days of mourning for my father are at hand. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. And the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Surely your brother Esau comforts himself concerning you by intending to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice, arise, Flee to my brother Laban in Haran. Oh, boy. You talk about Jacob meeting his match. Okay, an old Uncle Laban. We're going to see that next time. Verse 44, and stay with him a few days. 
Okay, until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him. I don't think a guy like Esau forgot too quickly, but until he forgets what you have done to him, and then I will send and bring you from there, why should I be bereaved also of you both in one day? Rebecca realized that by her deception, she had lost Esau. She had lost, he probably never really forgave her completely for what she had done, and he eventually moved away, not long after this, uh, to make his own way in the world. But you know what? At least she still had her favorite, Jacob, right? He would go to her brothers for a few days until things blew over, Esau cooled down, and then he could be brought back and uh, she could have her favorite son with her again. Well, you know what? A few days turned into 20 years, 20 years. And during that time, Rebecca died. Rebecca died. Her deception would make this the last time she laid eyes on Jacob for the rest of her life. There's a lesson here for us. When we take things into our own hands, even if our motives are good, and use deception to get what we want, listen to me. The price is often not worth the product. We often pay a higher price than what we get or what we wanted to have. If Rebecca had simply trusted God to do what he had promised her, you know, that the younger was going to be over the older. If she had just basically trusted God to fulfill his word without her using deception to bring it about, well, she would have still had the company of her favorite son for the rest of her life. Now look, God in his sovereignty knew what Rebecca was going to do. He knew that. He knew that she was going to, you know, get involved with this whole deception. Um, and God used it. Again, God incorporated it into his plan and used it to get Jacob all the way to Laban's house where he spent the next 20 years and married Laban's two daughters, uh, Leah and Rachel, which become the focus uh, now from this point on, Jacob and uh, his life. And uh, we just end with verse 46. And Rebekah said to Isaac, I am weary. This was, this was why... She was wanting to send him away. This was what she, she's still lying to Isaac. Okay, um, I think she's being partly true, but she had to come up with some excuse as to why she wanted Jacob to go all the way to Laban's house. I mean, she didn't want to tell Isaac that they had deceived Esau and he wants to kill Jacob. So she's got to make this up. Although there's some truth here, no doubt. She said to Isaac, "I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob takes a wife of the daughters of Heth." Like these who are the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? I mean, if Jacob marries one of these Canaanite pagan gals like Esau's done, I'm just going to have to commit suicide. I don't know what else to do. I'm beside myself. It's not easy having these two pagan daughter-in-laws, okay, or daughters-in-law. Um, so there was some truth to why she sent Jacob away. She did want him to get a wife from the family, which lived in Mesopotamia but um, still trying to deceive Isaac as to what was her full intention, sir. So we will now shift into chapter 28 and um, pick the story up from there. Father, we thank you for our time in your word, Lord. A lot here, a lot here, Lord, about taking things into our own hands, uh, not trusting you to do what you have promised if we don't try to help you. Lord, we just see, well, we see your grace too. A family that was so dysfunctional, if we didn't know they were saved, uh, we wouldn't think they were saved. 
And yet they were saved by grace, just like all of us, Lord. And uh, also, Lord, there are many in the church like Esau. They come to church. They're a part of the family in a sense. And yet they don't really value the birthright, being born again children of God. They're content to have religion. They really want to live for their flesh and not for the spirit. And so here they are, Lord. They're really unbelievers living among your people, the tares, living among the wheat. And someday when they face you, they're going to learn that they cannot have the blessing of heaven. And they're going to weep and wail. But they should have known better because you said this very clearly in your word. And so, Lord, we ask that you would touch everybody in our church who might be an Esau, somebody who thinks they're saved but is, are not, open their eyes, bring them to a place of genuine repentance, and uh, that, Lord, you might save them, that they might become a member of your covenant family in Christ. Lord, we thank you. Father, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.